On election night of 1976, I left the room in which I had been standing with a large party of other people and went into a tiny little storage closet at the back of the campaign headquarters I was in, and I cried, and I cried till I had no more tears. I had just watched my father concede, give a concession speech, after a long, expensive, bitter, difficult campaign for the United States Congress, which he had lost to a, an individual that I was pretty sure was a scoundrel. Now, I was biased, obviously. I had been working very hard in this campaign, along with other members of my family and hundreds of volunteers. We had spent months and months and months traveling all over New York, uh, southern New York State, uh, ringing doorbells, standing at shopping centers, uh, speaking our dad's case, doing everything we could to, to take this very talented guy and put him in higher office in our land. But we had lost to a guy who I knew was not a guy of good ethical Character, And I knew this uh, for a, from a variety of exposures to him along the campaign trail. Uh, I was not entirely uh, misinformed, even though I was very biased. Because just a couple of years later, after he went to the Congress, this individual was thrown out of politics in disgrace forever because he had made up his entire military career. He'd never served in the military at all. And yet he'd run on that against my dad. Uh, I was bitter about this, about the injustice of, of this. And, and, and honestly, that particular night, um, the campaign manager, our veteran campaign manager, was bitter about the outcome, so much so that he left politics for good that night and within a few years would tragically take his own life. Strangely, it was that loss that propelled my father onto a pathway that led to the rediscovery of the Christian faith in his life. And because of that change in him and his influence on me, it led to the establishment of a faith in my life. My dad would go on to a very fruitful career in politics, serve 10 years in the state senate. Uh, But on that particular night in 1976, I couldn't imagine anything possibly coming from these circumstances that would be anything like good. My vision had shrunk to the size of that little storage closet and was blinded by tears. And I, and I just got to ask if you have ever been in a place like that. Uh, have you ever been in a place in your life where the world seems to shrink to a little dark room? Uh, where, where it's so obvious to you that good has lost and evil has won and you despair of it ever changing. Have you ever been in that little dark room? Well, at the close of a campaign vastly more significant than the one I just described a moment ago, the disciples of Jesus found themselves in a place of anguish, something like that. They had labored for not just months, but for three long years to put Jesus in a place of even greater influence. 
and exposure in their very needy society. They had traveled on blistered feet through more little one-horse towns and, 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 and knocked on more doors and, and ministered to more kinds of people than they could even describe. And they were weary and, and almost exhausted from the effort of that campaign. They had seen along the way some amazing things. They had watched Jesus draw huge crowds. They had heard him give these remarkable speeches in which he described a vision of a new kind of kingdom in which people were related to God and related to one another in a way that lifted everybody up. And they were deeply desirous to see that kind of kingdom establish itself in their land. Jesus had been really clear along that journey that the route to that particular kingdom was not going to be a conventional one. It was not going to work like any political process or military process they'd ever seen. In fact, Jesus said, and I quote, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, which is Bible speak in the Old Testament for the Messiah, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. They won't put him in the Oval Office. They'll send him to the electric chair. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, Jesus said this to them a variety of ways and a number of figures of speech over time, but they could not understand what he was talking about. In fact, as he said it this last time, they had to have thought to themselves, the candidate has got campaign fatigue. I mean, the guy must not be paying attention to how well it's going around here. In fact, I mean, the crowds were just getting bigger all the time. When they came through the gates on Palm Sunday... It was to the hugest rally that had ever gone on in that land. I mean, there were about a million people in Jerusalem for the Passover, and just about every one of them seemed to come out, and they were hailing Jesus as, he, as if he was already their commander-in-chief. They, in fact, they were the, the, cry, the cry, cries of Hosanna were exactly the words used to, to, um, to hail a conquering chief. If you had read the palm frond polls on Palm Sunday you would conclude Jesus was the clear winner. So why was he talking like this? They must have wondered. They tried to understand, but they could not. As the week wore on, however, the tide began to change. Uh, Jesus had opposition all through the course of his ministry, but at this particular moment, the opposition turned brutal where they'd been mildly critical or skeptical in the past, now they mounted the equivalent of what we would call an attack ad campaign. They began circulating lies about Jesus uh, all around through the city. They actually hired rabble-rousers to stir up the crowd and spread all kinds of infamy about Jesus. And, and, and this began to work. It began to whip up negative uh, public opinion about Jesus, so much so that it actually reached into Jesus' inner circle. Now, Judas had signed on with Jesus because Judas was a member of the Zealot Party, and the Zealots wanted to see Rome overthrown. Judas had been pretty convinced that Jesus had the kind of authority needed to do that. He was going to make Israel great again. That's what Judas thought. But now, 
As Jesus increasingly began to talk about his kingdom not being of this world, or the way he talked about uh, praying for enemies, uh, it began to occur to Judas that maybe he had put his, uh, his money on the wrong candidate. Maybe he had joined the wrong campaign. And so at the last moment, just trying to, to rescue, salvage something from the investment he'd made all these years following around after Jesus, he decides to go to the opposition and give them inside information about where they can find Jesus when he's alone and not protected by a crowd. And he does this in exchange for a bribe. 30 pieces of silver. On the eve of the Passover, Judas leads... Uh, The opposition to where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, they arrest him on trumped-up charges. They haul him in front of the Roman governor Pilate and the Judean king Herod, each of whom also, like Judas, finds Jesus lacking in the kind of authority they're looking for. Herod says, why won't you do a miracle for me? Pilate says, you talk a lot about truth, but what's truth? And Jesus doesn't explain it to them. He chooses not to explain it for him. So the crowd that had rallied for Jesus on Palm Sunday, now, by Friday, rail against Jesus. He had not done no miracles for them either that week. I mean, the great health care program and the, uh, the feeding programs that he'd been much touted for earlier on in his campaign were not coming to fruition. He was not explaining the policies by which he was going to bring about the changes that they wanted to see happen. And so when they were given a choice by Pilate between freeing Jesus and freeing this loudmouth, rabble-rousing murderer named Barabbas, which way do you think their vote went? The crowd voted for Barabbas. Jesus had let them down. Jesus had failed to wow them in the last days of the campaign. Jesus had disappointed them So they shouted, crucify him. Crucify him, they shouted. And so that's what they did. The politicians, the pundits, the priests, Pilate, they crucified him. And from noon until three, Jesus hung on a cross up on a a rise outside of Jerusalem called Skull Hill, literally Golgotha, And the Bible says that a great darkness came over the land until Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. They took his body down from the cross. They laid it in a little dark room we call the tomb. And they locked the door. They sealed it shut. They posted an armed guard. And that's where we left the story on Good Friday. Now, the main characters in Christ's campaign now found themselves inside of a little room substantially darker and more dismal than the one that I sat in in that storage closet way back in 1976. I mean, where they sat right then was a really rough place. Judas who had betrayed Jesus, now reckoned he that there was no authority in the world that you could put your trust in. That certainly wasn't 
uh, Rome. It wasn't the religious establishment. It was not Jesus after all. And, and, and he began to fall into this little dark room of despair about this. He realized that even the 30, the money he'd gotten, the 30 pieces of silver he'd gotten, was not going to make up for the fact that there was no real thing in life on which you could base your future hope. And so Judas, in a fit of despair, in the darkness of that little room, kills himself. Peter, as you know, denied Jesus. He had claimed he would be loyal to the end. These other guys, they may let you down, Jesus. Trust me, I will be there through thick and thin for you. And then three times he had denied Jesus. He had denied Jesus. He did not even knowing Jesus. And now, faced with his failure, faced with the impossibility of even being forgiven for his failure because Jesus was now dead, Peter is utterly lost. And in that little dark room of guilt, irresolvable guilt, Peter just weeps and weeps and weeps, the Bible says. And then there's Mary. Mary. Jesus was her life. She she had staked her life caring for this child of hers. And And now he was gone forever. Like it's not supposed to be a kid predeceasing a a parent. And, and, And worse yet, Mary had seen him go. She had watched as he died the most torturous, awful, defeated kind of death possible for a human body to endure. And so Mary just sat in this little dark room of grief with no way out of that. With no way out of that. That room, whether it's despair or guilt or grief, that room is a tomb. It's a place every bit as dark, as devoid of life and laughter and love as that tomb in which they laid the body of Jesus on Good Friday. That room is something of a tomb. And some of you know this from your own personal experience because you've been there. Some of you are there right now. You're in that little dark room now. Some of you are feeling the kind of despair, at least verging on the kind of despair Judas did. I mean, maybe you've not literally thought hard about taking your own life But gosh, every now and then it's crossed your mind. Maybe it would be better if I just let go. Maybe everybody else would be better if I just got out of here because I don't feel like there's any hope anymore. I feel like the things that I've put uh, my trust in have let me down. I feel like there's no real authority on which to base my life. I feel like life is losing its meaning for, for me. Maybe you're in that little dark room of despair or maybe it's that room of of guilt that Peter knew. You know what you've done. There there are things you've done you've not ever told anybody else about because you're so ashamed of them. Or you're aware of the things you didn't do when you could have done them. And you just, you can't go back. Like Peter, you know it's over and you can't be forgiven. Or you feel like I can't be forgiven for what happened or what didn't happen when I could have influenced it, and you're in that dark room of guilt. Or like Mary, maybe for you it's grief. 
Maybe, maybe somebody that you have loved so deeply has died. And they're gone forever. Or maybe you're watching somebody head down that trail towards death. Or maybe you can feel the cold, clammy presence of death moving towards you inexorably. Inexorably. Evil smiles when you're in that position. Do you know that? Evil smiles when you're in that little dark room. Because that is where evil wants you. Evil's number one purpose, as we've discovered over the course of our study in recent weeks, is to rob you of joy, is to rob human beings of joy. God created a world of amazing joy. And that's the story of Eden, a place of wonderful joy. His purpose, even through the coming of his son, was to restore that joy. Jesus said, I have come that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. Evil hates joy because he's the anti-joy. And he, want, he hates it when the children of God are experiencing joy. And so he tries to drive us into a mindset about life that will rob us of that joy. And he loves it when we come to believe three little lies in particular that I want to touch on today. First, evil wants us to believe that there is no trustworthy authority in this world. There is no God worth your trust because he lets too much pain happen in your life. You cannot trust other people because everybody else lies. And sooner or later, they are going to disappoint you and let you down. There is no one wise or good on the throne of the universe. And as the more we absorb this, even in subtle ways in ourselves, the more it leads to a kind of a low-level level of despair. And sometimes a pretty high level of despair in our lives. Secondly, evil wants us to believe that ultimately there's no hope for fallen humanity. Oh, he loves it when you watch the news. He's thrilled that we're obsessed these days with, with the streams of one kind or another because he knows what we're going to see there. He, he knows we're going to see that the lust, the deceit, the arrogance, the anger, the betrayal, the corruption, the envy, the stupidity, the division everywhere, and it's going to soak into us like, like in no other society because of the screens that are ubiquitous and the sounds coming our way. He loves this. When we come to the conclusion because of this constant input of negativity that there's no way out, humanity's not going to change. You can't be forgiven for all of this. Just accept the fact that people are broken and it's going to stay that way and probably get worse. Evil loves it when we feel that because it's going to lead us to either a sense of guilt because I look in the mirror and realize that stuff out there, it's in me too. Or it's going to lead to sort of a, a cynicism, which is sort of the, the form of humor now that we've got left in our world, kind of cynical humor, laughing, giving up on, poking fun at everything and everyone. It's a way we deal with despair and guilt. Finally, evil wants us to believe there's nothing greater than death. Nothing great. Go home, he says, and look in the mirror. Every wrinkle it's just a reminder you're decaying. <laughs> Spend all the money you want. 
You won't reverse the course of gravity, trust me, evil says. You won't. Your destiny is a hole in the ground. That's what you are. That's where you're going. In fact, every graveyard you see, let that remind you that you shouldn't get too attached to other people because you're going to lose them all. Every one of them in the end, and they'll lose you. So don't pour yourself into love because love means loss. You're a fool if you do that. And those crosses you see various places, let them remind you that even if you live a perfectly spotless life of love, and all you do is love people, death will still get you. Evil loves this when it soaks into our mind and we start to live a life of subconscious grief. Denying death, bargaining with death, angry about death, depressed about death. Evil loves this. All those stages of grief. And what I think evil wants us to do most of all is to come to the conclusion that this really is all there is. This little dark room with its walls is all there really is for us till we can't even imagine a life beyond those walls. And in that sense, I think we're a little bit like a character named Jack in the Oscar-winning film, Room. Some of you may have seen it. Room tells the story of a very evil man. They call him Old Nick in the story, who kidnaps a vivacious 17-year-old girl named Joy. He literally steals Joy. He takes her, and he secrets her away, and he imprisons her in a storage shed behind his ramshackle, horrid home. And he keeps her in there for years as an object of his perverted pleasures anytime he wants. Two years into this horrible nightmare of of a turn of events, uh, Joy gives birth to a child she names Jack. And desperately determined, she's not letting him be destroyed by evil. She is not letting him be disfigured by evil. She does her best within the confines of this little room to try and make life as normal as possible, to try and teach him joy, to to help him take some delight out of even the fact that there's a little uh, skylight in the top of of, of the room through which a little bit of light comes. He can see a little bit of sky. And Jack grows up believing believing that this room is the world. Room is the universe to Jack. And it's not until one day the door is unlocked for good and thrown open and he goes out that he finds out that room isn't even close to ultimate reality. And there's this scene in the movie in which Jack is lying on his back in a pickup truck as it speeds along a road, and he's looking up at this vast sky, so much larger than that little window at the top of the shed. And he sees the sky, and he sees the branches of the trees, and the look in his face is like rapturous at the glory of all there is. And it becomes the beginning 
of a journey in which Jack embarks upon the great adventure of discovering life as it was always meant to be. This is Easter. This is the story of Easter. When we meet them that particular day, the disciples are victims of all these lies that humanity has been uh, buying, that evil has been telling, since evil stole joy from the garden back at the beginning. The disciples are literally now locked in a what? Little dark room. The Bible tells us that though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Jesus has come for one purpose, to get them out of room, to take them out of that little dark room, to take them on a journey that shows them life in all of its fullness, life abundant as it was meant to be. And Doubting Thomas can't believe it at first. He cannot believe his eyes. Uh, and, And he insists on touching, and Jesus lets him touch. And then Thomas falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. And this is the beginning now of a whole chain of events in which more than 500 different people in different times and places and emotional states will meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ in a way that utterly convinces them of the reality of his having defeated the grave and the cross. And and, and they they will be altered in profound ways. They will become convinced that the resurrection is not what people today often say it is, a metaphor. A metaphor for renewed hopes. A metaphor for spiritual rebirth. Uh, It is not a projection of imagination, of fond, wishful thinking. These folks will sit with Jesus. They'll eat with him, talk with him, walk with him, touch him, interact with him over a period of 40 days to the point where they become convinced that they now have hard evidence that Jesus is who he always said he was, the one true authority on which we can base our life, the way, the truth, and the life. And and Jesus will go on to to comfort Mary. He, He will go on to assure Mary that death is but a doorway into an even larger existence if your hand is in the hand of God. And Mary and the other disciples will go to their own deaths, some of them horrible, brutal persecution deaths, still convinced that there's life beyond the room. There's a glorious life beyond this room. And Jesus will forgive Peter. (laughs) He will forgive him. He will restore his place in the mission of the kingdom of God and make him and the other disciples into people of transformed courage and character. People that are almost unrecognizable from the characters they were before and witnesses to this day of the fact that no matter how deep you've sunk, no matter how badly you've failed, God can change you. He can change every character for the good. Jesus will then send the church out into the world. He will call them to live by the values of the kingdom of God, and that kingdom will begin to overturn the Roman Empire. It will replace the paganism and the barbarism of that day with what we call Western civilization. It will become, the Jesus vision will become the fount of the reason, the progress, the hope, the dignity of human beings that we now take for granted. It came from Easter. 
It all began there. And it continues as we hold on to this marvelous truth. My friends, the question now, I think, is whether you and I and the nation that we influence will live our lives in the light of Easter or content ourselves with our dark little rooms. Make no mistake about this. Evil is campaigning hard for the latter. It is pulling out every stop it can think of to convince us that ultimately uh, grief, anger, despair, guilt, all those things, they need to be the dominant things we're thinking about and feeling. But Jesus says, no, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly than that. Easter shows us there is an authority worthy of your absolute trust. Easter shows us that. Easter shows us there is redeeming hope for humanity. He can change lives. He can change your life and that of your loved ones. Easter shows us there is hard evidence that love and light and life are stronger, stronger and greater than death. For I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. And whoever puts their trust in me, even though they die, yet shall they live again. So here's what it boils down to, and I'm going to let you go. Easter tells us God wins. Don't be confused by the momentary uh, plight of the campaign. Uh, God wins. He wins the ultimate campaign. He unlocks the door. He makes it possible for us to go out into that larger kind of life. And Easter is his invitation to you and to me to come out of the tomb, out of the little rooms, and into the great adventure that he made us for. And so come be part of this community of people who are discovering in our own lives every single day that God is winning. He's winning all the time. And he can do so in you and through you for the sake of this world he loves so very much that once upon a time, he came himself. He sent his son Jesus to be our savior. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we remember the words you spoke. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Lord, I pray that if there's even one person in this room who has never before answered that knocking, that that individual will have the courage right now, the humility right now, to open the door of their life and welcome you in, and that you will take them from that place out into the wonderful adventure for which you created them. This is our prayer for ourselves, for each one here, in the name of Jesus. Amen.